You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. All right, so let's jump in. Um, We're just going to look at the first couple of verses here. Um, Let's do it. It says this, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, a party without wine, right, is not a party. We, we probably can identify with that reality even now. But, but in the ancient world, it's, it's all the more important. This is a serious social faux pas. So while this is something, maybe a little detail that, that we sort of glaze over and think, well, there's no wine. I mean, that's not that big of a deal. Like people can still hang out. Surely there's other things to drink. You know, there's the Dr. Pepper over there and bottled water and all the other stuff that, that we serve at a wedding, right? But in the first century, this is very serious. And here's why. I'm just going to give us some, some history so that we, again, understand kind of what's taking place here. Weddings, right? Weddings were a huge deal in the first century, and, and even remote acquaintances would be invited, which is, which is really evidenced by the fact that Jesus and his disciples come, right? So Cana's, Cana's in Galilee, so it's like around where Jesus hangs out, but it's not like his hometown, right? And yet he's invited, not just him, but his little entourage that he has essentially collected um, over the last part of chapter one of John, right? So So weddings are a huge deal. They would typically last as long as a week, right? So a wedding celebration, a week long. It's a big, big deal. And the quality of the party was ultimately a reflection on the families that provided that party. In particular, the groom and his family because they were financially responsible for the festivities at hand. And so to run out of wine was not only to mean the end of the party, right? But it was also to mean an, a significant amount of embarrassment, social capital lost on behalf of the groom and his family. In fact, um, in fact it was so serious um, that relatives of the bride legally would have a right to sue the groom. <laughs> like, I... If you've ever done wedding planning, like there's a lot of pressure around it, but I, th- we didn't have that kind of pressure, you know? Like they have a legal right to sue me if I don't provide enough wine for the shindig, right? If this party's not off the hook, right? Like I, I could very well be going to court for this. And so Mary's telling this to Jesus. Mary coming to Jesus and saying they have no wine is not a toss-aside, careless statement. Hey, I was, I was back in the kitchen, and guess what? They don't have any wine. This party's about to die, you know? We can finally go home. It's been a week or whatever, you know? Like, when Mary comes to Jesus and says they have no wine, it's a serious problem. And look, we can tell that Jesus is not just passively commenting, but actively petitioning Jesus for help when we read the next two verses, right? So, so, so let's read this. 
When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now here's the thing, and this is where we have to kind of separate ourselves from our, our modern cultural reading of this. When we read the word woman, all right, Jesus is not being pejorative to Mary. He's not saying woman, right? <laughs> he, he's, saying, he's saying, it's it's very simple. The term in the original language is, it's courteous, but at the same time, it's not as endearing as, as you would expect it to be, right? Because, I mean, this is Jesus' mother after all, all right? So it's, it's courteous, but it's almost as if, and, and I'm going to take a little bit of liberty here because it doesn't say this explicitly in the text, but it's almost as though Jesus is somewhat distracted when he is told by Mary that there is no wine. And he responds with, woman, what, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And so here's the thing, I mean, you know, if you've ever been at a party and someone tells you, hey, there's no booze left, like, you're probably not the first one to be like, oh, I'll take care of that. Right? I mean, I think Jesus' response to Mary's petition is actually a valid question, right? There's no wine. Okay, what, like, what? Okay, what does that have to do with me? First of all, this problem belongs to the groom, right? And to the master of the feast who we're introduced to um, later on in verse 9, right? The master of the feast was responsible for uh, taking care of the wine and diluting it appropriately so that the feast could continue and so that people um, would be able to party sort of for the duration of the event. So the groom hasn't provided enough and the master of the feast hasn't done enough work to essentially ensure that um, the wine lasted. The groom underprovided, the master of the feast overserved, so the wine didn't last like it should have. And here's the other, the, the other problem, right? Not only is it not Jesus' problem, uh, like, in, in reality or in terms of sort of the, uh, the social structure at hand, it, it's, it's also not his problem in that Jesus probably doesn't have the means that this family has to provide. I mean, throughout the Gospels, we're kind of, we're, we're told that, that Jesus essentially leads the life of a man who is homeless, living off sort of the, the, the kindness of other people who would allow him into their homes at times. Right, so what's Jesus supposed to do about this? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Right, so beyond asking, what does this have to do with me? Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Now, we don't have time to dive into it in any great length, but the word hour in John is used to reference the hour of Jesus' glory being made fully known, right? That's what that, that hour is, that time is. So what Jesus is saying is, 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 woman, what does this have to do with me, first of all? But then two, my, my hour has not yet come. It is not, it's not yet the appropriate time at which my glory should or could or will be even fully revealed. So Mary is asking Jesus to do something, right? We can, we can tell that just by, by his response, and we'll, we'll be able to tell even from the next verse. Mary is asking Jesus to do something, but look, she's not necessarily asking Jesus to do something miraculous, right? Because as the text tells us, this is Jesus' first miracle, right? 
So it's not like Jesus was walking on his baby bath water uh, or, or doing any of those other things like as he was growing up, right? This is his first miracle. So, so Mary has no frame of reference, right? Or no understanding or no clue, no hint to the fact that Jesus would or could be able to change water into wine or anything other that would be so miraculous as to provide wine. Mary simply wants the wedding to end without embarrassment. And while Jesus is fully aware of the approaching of his hour and the messianic mission that he is embarking on, he is completely, right, and totally wrapped up in that reality in that there is something that Mary has said, there is something about this wedding imagery that surrounds him, there is something about the lack of wine that has triggered something in Jesus to think upon that hour, that time that will come when he is glorified. And this is Mary's response, right? Verse 5 says this, His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. It's kind of odd, right? Like, and this is where we can kind of, I think, begin to understand that Jesus is, is, is a bit more gentle, right, than maybe our reading of the text would suggest. Because while she, she, she understands sort of like, okay, there's clearly something else going on here, she still says, look, let's be prepared. Servants, you guys, Jesus tells you to do anything, you do that thing. Jesus' mother sort of shakes off the, the gentle rebuke and exemplifies really a a beautiful kind of of persevering faith in in Jesus, in in her son, right? She sort of makes a presumption on the family tie, says, Jesus, look, like, you're here. We've got a problem. I think that you're resourceful. I think that you can solve it. Would you please do something? Woman, my hour has not come. What does this have to do with me? Do what he tells you. She displays this, this faith that is perfectly content to state the problem and then remain content with the fact that it is now in Jesus' hands. That Jesus knows and what happens next. Verse 6 says this, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And then, of course, we know what happens. The master of the feast takes of the water and sees that now it has become wine. And so this is an interesting situation. On a, on a host of levels that, that really we, we, we only get to sort of scratch the surface of. But right, so here, here's essentially what happens. The, the wedding party runs out of wine. Mary asks Jesus for help. Jesus says, it's not my problem. My hour's not come yet. Mary says, uh, do what he tells you anyway. And then Jesus provides the wine. Right? To me anyway, it kind of seems like <laughs> Jesus is a little bit of everywhere, Right? And what's go, what is going on here? But what we see is that Jesus, even in the midst of maybe thinking of something distant in the future, not so distant as we'll see at the conclusion of John, but 
as he is thinking upon those things, he still, in the middle of that, provides the wine. And look, Jesus doesn't just provide some wine, right? It tells us there that there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So he doesn't just provide some wine or just enough to get by. He's not counting ounces and taking weight measurements to get just the right amount so that pe- people have fun but don't get drunk. Right? A full, just for reference sake, a full-size keg is 15 and a half gallons. So six, two times the regular size of wine. I'd say they're set at this point. Right? He provides in abundance. And, and in, verse, in verse 7 and in verse 8, we see, we see how he does that, right? How does Jesus provide? How does Jesus provide this wine? He, he, he goes about providing it. How does he do it? He does it through miraculous power, certainly. But he does it through miraculous power adjoined to or mixed with a simple obedience. Right, here's what happens. The party runs out of wine. A woman tells you, just put yourself in the servant's shoe at this point, right? Shoes. Hopefully they have two. Right? The party runs out of wine. A woman comes up to you and tells you, hey, listen to that guy over there. The guy over there tells you in response to the wine shortage, hey, fill those buckets. And this is before hoses, right? So it's not just a like, oh yeah, I'll flip the faucet on kind of thing. It's like, no, I'm, okay, I'm going to take my jar, I'm going to fill it up with water, probably over there somewhere, and I'm going to haul it back here, and I'm going to dump it in there, and I'm going to do that about 500 times. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're like me, right, I generally need some sort of justification for, for most things that I'm asked to do, right? Like, somebody tells me, you should do this, I'm going to go, okay, well, why should I do that, Right? And if there's no readily apparent benefit, I'm most likely not going to do that thing. And so, what I probably would have done in this situation is gone, yeah, okay, guy. Um, I'm going to go take care of the other stuff that I've got to do. Plenty of other things to do beyond scooping water into some buckets. And yet, the servants simply do as they're told. They do as they're told, and through Jesus' miraculous power and their simple obedience, Jesus works effectively to both spare the embarrassment of the groom and reveal a hint, a measure, right, of his glory. So that's kind of the, the, the details, right, of what's going on, the details of the party, why those details are significant, what it is that, that the Lord has done. But what is it that's really going on underneath the surface? What is it that has Jesus' mind so occupied that when his mother comes and makes a simple request, he responds somewhat like, wait, what? What, what does this have to do with me? I think the hint... That we, can, that we can draw from or that we can find in this text is in verse 4 when Jesus uses those words, my hour has not yet come. 
I said earlier that the hour in John is a reference to the moment when Jesus' glory will be made known, His glorification. And the hour of Jesus' glorification is the hour of His death. Jesus is highly aware in this moment, right, the moment of this wedding, this, this, this wedding at Cana in Galilee. He is highly aware aware of the coming moment when he will give up his life for many, where when he will be forsaken of the Father so that we could be welcomed. That's what has occupied his mind. That is what has consumed his mind in this moment. Now, why is that? Well, if you've you've read the Bible um, with, with sort of even a cursory reading, you know that um, that weddings in the Bible are, are very important, and so is wine. Right? So my, my guess is, and, and I would venture to say that's not a guess, my, I, I, I believe the, the reality of the situation here is that the imagery that surrounds Jesus now as he looks at the bride, as she looks adoringly at her groom, as he looks at the surrounding people celebrating with joy, rejoicing in the this most recent nuptials of their friends, right? As they partake of wine and good food, as he's looking around at all of that, he is stricken with the fact that before he can enjoy his wedding, there is a moment of horrible, horrible, terrifying evil that is yet to come, that stands in between him in that moment. So he knows, right? If we, so if we read Revelation chapter 19, it characterizes the end of history as the wedding feast of the Lamb, right? When Jesus has his wedding to his bride, the church, the people of God. Jesus knows that that wedding feast is coming. But right now, he is sitting in the reality of the great cost at which it will come. You see, wine, all, all throughout the Scriptures, wine is, is seen as sort of this agent of joy, of gladness, right? Psalm 105, the wine that gladdens the hearts of men, right? Jesus knows that in order to provide wine for His feast, He'll have to pay for it in His blood. The feast at the wedding of Jesus will be bountifully provided for. We can see that in Revelation chapter 19. There will be a great host, a great multitude, all of them celebrating with no lack. But before we can drink the cup of joy, the cup of gladness, Jesus has to drink the cup of sorrow. Jesus in this moment is fixed on that moment that is yet to come. And what's so amazing in all of this, and and one of the reasons that I think that, um, you know, Jesus doesn't do things like in happenstance, you know. It tells us that he's sovereign, tells us that he has a plan, right? The Bible is very clear about all that. John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Word became flesh, dwelt among us, right? All plan A, no, like, There's no contingency here. This is God doing what God is going to do because he's faithful to do what he says he's going to do each and every time. Never has there been a time where he's been inconsistent with what he's promised he would do, right? 
And so it's no coincidence, it's no coincidence that the turning of water to wine is the first miracle that Jesus performs. You see, in the Old Testament, there's this, uh, there's a story about Moses and, and Egypt and Pharaoh, and I don't, I don't have a whole lot of time to go into it, but suffice it to say that there were some curses that came upon the people there where God turned the water into blood, undrinkable, right? As a curse, and now Jesus is saying, in me, the water's turned to wine. It's turned to joy. And so when Mary says, they have no wine, what Jesus is hearing is, they have no joy. And when Jesus meets their need in the wine, he says, I'm the true wine. I am the true source of your joy. I am the provision for your gladness. I am the wine, the cup of joy. Jesus is the true wine, and Jesus invites us to the true wedding party, right? In that this wedding party at Cana and every other wedding party that you and I have the privilege of being invited to is a, is a shadow, a weak faint shadow of the glory that will be the wedding of Jesus to his bride, the church. And that's, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a picture. It's glorious in and of its own right, but a billion times a billion more glorious in that this, all this is, it's a mystery by which, right, the mystery of Jesus' union to his church is made known. That's what Ephesians tells us, right? And so the wedding of Jesus to his bride, the inseparable eternal union between God and his people is what Jesus has in mind and he is looking towards it sorrowfully knowing what he must pass through in order to make that moment a reality. And then it tells us this. Verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, verse 10, and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. You see, here's, here's our reality, right? In much the same way that the groom couldn't turn water to wine and, and couldn't come up with what was necessary to provide it, right? Either the money or the relational capital or sort of the, the manpower to go and collect it or to create it, right? In much the same way, we are powerless to generate or give ourselves um, the joy that is truly joy, the life that is truly life, right? Which is why Jesus comes and he provides life to men, as chapter 1 tells us, and he provides wine of joy for those who are in lack, right? Our salvation doesn't come from us, right? It comes for us in Christ. And if you're a believer in, in the room this morning, if, you, if you've called upon the name of Jesus, if you've recognized that you are powerless to create good merit, right, good favor in God's eyes, and that you have to rely upon Jesus' perfect record for you, then, he, then here's your reality. Your reality is this. The good wine is yet to come. And that, look, you and I, like, 
we experience a measure of God's glory and grace. We experience some good wine and that we get to come and read His Word, His, His present, living, abiding Word that saturates us in His glory and fills us up with confidence in His great grace and His kindness towards us in Christ, right? That's good wine. Brings us joy and glad hearts filled with rejoicing. The best wine is yet to come. And that one day we will experience those things in their fullness. And that one day we will experience the presence of Christ, not just in His Spirit, which is wonderful, but in His literal, physical, bodily presence. And that you will be able to look at Him in the face. The best wine is yet to come. Jesus has saved the best wine until last. All the good and the joy of this life is but a foretaste of the great wedding party that is to come. So what do we, what do, we do with all this, right? Where we've been rescued, right, from a, from a life of lack, from a life without joy, from a life without the wine of gladness, and we've been given a life with joy and a life with light and a life with the wine of gladness. Well, here's what verse 11 says. It says, This is the first of His signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. Right? We've been talking about epiphany, manifestation, Jesus manifesting His glory so that what? So that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you might have life in His name, life characterized, at least in this portion, by, by joy. So as Jesus manifests Himself to people so that they might believe, we now have the great honor and privilege of doing the same, manifesting Jesus so that people might believe. We have invitations to the greatest party in the history of the universe. And we get to hand them out as freely and to as many people as we want. This isn't a limited guest list. You don't only get a plus two. So as we look to manifest and make Jesus known to others, here's what we can do. And I think we take it from, from just what we see um, in, in sort of these, these periphery characters around Jesus and how they behave and how they, uh, how they respond to Jesus in this moment, right? I think the first thing that we can do is this. We can pray expectantly, right? In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 tells us not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and by supplication to present our requests to God, right? I mean, isn't that what, what Mary does here? She asks Jesus expectantly. Expectantly of what? And I'm going to try to be quick here. One, she expects Jesus to hear her, right? Jesus has many things to consider and could easily be, um, be thought to be preoccupied, right? He even somewhat comes across that way with his encounter with Mary as he thinks about his impending hour on the cross. And yet, even in that moment in which you could arguably say, maybe even demonstrably say, that Jesus is preoccupied, he intervenes. And he intervenes to spare a groom that he's probably not even extremely ex close to. 
and he intervenes to, to spare a groom that he's maybe not even extremely close to, right, that really all, all he's going to lose is some social capital, some embarrassment. How much more will Jesus willingly hear from his brothers and sisters purchased with his own blood? Right, if we want to make Jesus known, we should pray expectantly that Jesus will do us and when, uh, will do that through us. And when we do that, right, we should expect him to hear us. So when we come before the throne of God on behalf of Bob or Mike or Julie or whoever it is in your life that God has put around you and we ask him to do something that we know we can't do, turn water into wine in their lives... We should expect Him to hear us. And then, secondly, we should expect Jesus to act. Now look, Mary doesn't know if or how Jesus is going to act, but that doesn't stop her from asking, and it certainly doesn't stop her from preparing for a potential answer. We can give over those things which make us anxious, right? whether they're social, whether they're spiritual, whether they're physical, whether they're mental, whether they're financial, trust that Jesus is going to act because in the cross, he has already acted for us in the most costly way. So we can expect him to act even if it's not in a way that we um, desire or anticipate, right? So look, you may say, look, I've prayed, I've prayed for that person. I've prayed for that friend. I've asked that the Lord would use me to do X, Y, or Z. I've, I've prayed that the Lord would grow my influence at work or among my circle of friends so that, so that Jesus might be made known. And look, it might be taking longer than you expect, or it might not have happened in the way that you expected it to happen. And yet, look, we can give over the details of how that's going to happen and just expect that Jesus somehow will order those things because we are petitioning and coming before him and asking him. So first thing we can do is pray expectantly. The second thing we can do is obey confidently. Right? Romans chapter 1, verse 5 tells us that faith produces obedience, that, that it grows out of it, that they're inseparable, that, that from faith comes obedience. It's, it's, like a, it's, a, it's, it's a law. And I mean that in, not in the sense of the, the, the law in the Bible, but a law in the sense of like the laws of nature, that that, that is what happens. And if we look to these servants, right, ultimately, I think there's a way in which they obey that, that, that although they might not know it yet, right, betrays a faith in Jesus' power and ability, right? So as Jesus is Lord of the wine, so is he Lord of the universe, right? As we saw in John chapter 1. And as easily as he turns water to wine, so easily does he hold up the stars in their place and give the sun its light. And so here's what that means. That we can obey confidently in faith in Jesus' power and ability, but we can also obey confidently with faith in Jesus' use of the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Right? These are the servants at the party. They're, I mean, they're like... Just like you ignored your, your waiter at Chili's yesterday, like that's this, that's this guy. He's just a servant. And yet the Lord is going to use his simple obedience in, in a task that admittedly seems odd to do something wonderful, to provide joy. As he can use simple servants doing menial tasks to turn water to wine, he can use your simple understanding of the gospel and your 
and your ordinary relationships to bring light to darkness, death to life, unbeliever to believer. And so our response, right, is to, as Mary says, do whatever he tells you. And the third thing we can do is this, we can, we can party joyfully, right? Just like the feast here continues, and it not only continues, but it actually gets better because now the, the, good, the, the wine before was good, but now the good, good wine is here, right? You and I can party, like we can live a life that is characterized by joyful rejoicing, right? And I purposely use two words that are almost the same because we want to double up on that, you, right? Lives that are characterized by joyful rejoicing because of Jesus' grace to us now, but also with the understanding that Jesus has here, which is that the best wine is yet to come. See, look, so much of our life is characterized uh, not by joy, but by uh, what we perceive to be lack, which is really odd for us as Christians. Paradoxical, even, I would say. Right? If, if in Christ we have been given everything, the riches of his inheritance in not only the, the kindness and favor of God to us now, but also his crown and glory that we will share with him in heaven, right? If we've been given all that, why is it such a big deal that I didn't get that particular car for Christmas this year? Why is it such a big deal that I don't have this level of fame or this amount of money in the bank account or this sort of level of attractiveness partner? You know what that does when, we, when we're sitting there concerned and, 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 and wrapped up in those things is, is we actually, um, we, we don't manifest the glory of Jesus, we actually de- detract from the glory of Jesus because we say, you know what, Jesus is great, but, but so is this. But so is this. I'm still flirting with this thing over here. And yet, if, if Jesus really is our joy, if he is the cup of wine, the wine of gladness, then you and I can rejoice joyfully in his grace now towards us and that we get to experience it even here in the midst of all this mess. And we can joyfully rejoice in all that is to come. And so my hope and my prayer this morning is that we, right, that we would make Jesus known in such a way that the great magnitude of the work that he has done would be made known appropriately, that people might believe as his glory is manifest in us, as we are satisfied in him, as we pray expectantly that he will make others satisfied in him, as we walk in faithful obedience to him in order to see that happen, and as we rejoice joyfully together in this room and all throughout the week in the great kindness and mercy of Christ towards us on the cross. Let's pray.